Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to ADAPS Podcast, uh, Prevention 365. Happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month to everyone. And um, my name is Sarang. I will be the host for today's episode. And I am going to be interviewing my colleague, Beatrice, about the importance of ADAPS mission and in the context of Asian and Asian American societies on a global scale. So Beatrice, would you like to speak a little bit more about yourself? Hi, my name is Gee. Um, I go by B, but my full name is Beatrice. Um, I'm really interested in discussing substance use on a global scale and especially discussing these types of issues on a global scale because items that foreign governments are utilizing to help target that demographic are obviously items that we as an NGO should learn and should start implementing in order to kind of address substance use issues. Wonderful. So did you want to give us a little introduction on how ADAP was started or what the founding principles of the organization are? I came at like a really interesting time because we were actually just starting to work on the 50th gala and so that led me to learn a lot about the social justice movements that ADAP arose from and especially the community that ADAP arose from because Crenshaw specifically is a very interesting area where both the Japanese population and the black population were both redlined into and so this is like a really interesting conversation about race demographics and um, redlining especially within Los Angeles because this type of interactions between these two communities leads to you know items like our NGO the conversation of Um, substance use especially back in the 70s leads to these types of conversations that are needed to be had and so this leads to the creation of the yellow brotherhood right um we were very fortunate enough to honor one of the yellow brotherhood founding members nick nakatani at our 50th gala because he has been instrumental in helping us create and create adop and so today, ADAP like helps bring that forward by working with a large variety of communities in different demographics, especially in the sub- South Los Angeles area. You spoke a little bit about um, what ADAP is doing in the present day. What have you seen and even experienced through your current role at ADAP working with Asian and Asian American communities? I think that there are obviously like especially on the government level and especially on the ngo level these types of issues need to be discussed and handled a bit better Um, it's difficult especially with aapi communities because we don't really discuss those types of issues and we don't really enjoy discussing those types of issues and this coalesces all the way back to um when the british were importing opium into a lot of east east and south southeast asia uh, especially amongst large trading routes and then this is kind of what helps stigmatizes substance use right especially in 
in these types of vulnerable communities because if we're thinking about who works you know who works along the trade route right who works on the merchant ships who is part of this demographic um it's often people who are lower class who are a little who are poor who can't really afford much and we see these types of issues really not addressed throughout history throughout government history and throughout like government policy because it's just um it's just punitive punishments. It's not kind of rehabilitative punishments. I, I think the Opium War is like a particularly fascinating portion of, of Asian history. And so like I really do enjoy learning how the Empress at, at that time was trying to deal with, you know, the high demographic of opium users, especially within the port systems, because China at that time was heavily reliant on foreign trade. I think it's very fascinating how like as a society I feel like especially in East Asian countries we aren't addressing these types of issues and we're not trying to properly address the solutions because it's just historical stigmatization and historical um, biases that we have especially amongst these communities who are you know actively being impacted by substance use right um, and I know that you've done a little bit of background research on how some other communities and other societies are actually dealing with substance abuse. You mentioned that you had gathered some resources about how um, countries abroad are dealing with it. So did you want to ease into that a little bit? Yeah. And so this really came from um, when I was discussing with my mother about in what ways can we better try to not draw in the AAPI community, but try to cater our services towards the AAPI community so that we are able to attract people who are in need and who are who genuinely want help, right? And so um, this kind of came as a conversation that I, I had with my mom over like Korean barbecue uh, about how other countries are specifically dealing with substance use issues. We are very aware of how Korea deals with substance use issues, which is it's a punitive punishment and it's it's very heavily punished, right? Um, yeah, we see those articles like every single two weeks, so-and-so actor is found using prescription drugs and he gets what, like, 10 years in prison and so like this is kind of just an active portrayal of the stigmatization and the biases that we have against substance users and he, like people aren't able to find the holistic health that they need and so I focus a lot of my um, research into Taiwan because I think Taiwan has a very interesting governmental organization um, because a majority of the government actually studied in foreign countries um, Tsai Ing-wei, the current president, is, I, th I think she got her master's degree in Britain, right? And so, and so, like, they, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic where they have the experience of being within foreign, foreign teachings, and then they come back, and then they try to, it's not westernized, but they're trying to apply it to a very different type of thinking, which I think is particularly fascinating. And that's why I think like whatever Taiwan does in terms of foreign policy or economic policy is one of the most fascinating items <laughs> that I love 
thinking about and I love studying because I'm also Taiwanese, but I just think it's it's significantly different than what we see from um, other East Asian countries or other Asian countries in general. And so like what I think Taiwan has done as um, preventative measures is particularly fascinating because there are actual research papers there their government has funded research papers into seeing the seeing how the preventative health care that they offer to their, their citizens works and it's really interesting because Taiwan is a it's a one payer pays all type of healthcare system so they have a nationalized healthcare system and so rather than having these people who later on have substance use issues and they are kind of it's it's that mentality i see this a lot in the papers that we are trying to prevent heavy drug use early on so that later on we don't have to pay more for them and so it's like i do read it in the papers and i do understand the the thinking of it it makes sense but at the same time it's not like very holistic because the governments weren't able to are like do not really want to address substance use issues um this led to the creation a lot of a lot of ngos in foreign countries to address these issues and to implement these preventative issues like india back in like 19 in the 1990s created there was an ngo that was created so that they could do um, needle exchange programs right um, because, you know, the government just wasn't providing those types of services. And so um, currently Taiwan has a partnership with a bunch of NGOs and international research organizations to kind of study the, and try to apply preventative man measures into um, HIV work and the prevalence of HIV, especially among the community of intravenous drug users. Um, and so there is like, it's because in Asia overall, the demographic of prison population, a majority of those, the people within the prisons are actually substance users because of the preventative laws within East Asian countries or Asian countries in general. I think Taiwan is one of the few ones that try to do rehabilitation, but I it's not it's not like an issue that they're looking to fix. China is one of the bigger places where they actually create and export substances like heroin, methamphetamines, um those types of substances. What they have been doing recently is, especially in Taiwan, is they're trying to crack down on areas where substance use is particularly prevalent. And I mentioned this to you before, that um, a lot of the places where substance use is prevalent is like clubs, it's like karaoke bars, it's like where people are meeting on a one-to-one -one or like meeting in small intimate spaces and they're using these drugs. And it, it, it's, it's very similar to the tactic that they used, that the Chinese government used back during the opium wars or before the opium wars, where they were just closing down opium dens. 
I think Taiwan is it's it's not one of the few countries, but it's one of the countries that is like willing to address it. They actually started, I think, back in twenty oh in two thousand and six, they started a nas uh, a national harm reduction program that was implemented by the Taiwanese government to consist yeah to address these types of issues because um, it's really difficult, especially for NGOs, nonprofit organizations. Um, non-government organizations to address these types of issues because you get a, a lot of backlash, especially from the community, um, that even if talking about these issues, you're kind of promoting these types of issues because you have to take into consideration, like, um, you know, the a lot of the government of Taiwan didn't study in Taiwan. They studied overseas. And so they're trying to apply Western philosophies onto these like these types of populations and so this is like this the the harm reduction program is the same program that we utilize here at ADAP right and so we focus a lot on education and inf information focus on people who use intravenous drugs right mm -hmm. um and then we also Taiwan the national the national program offers clean needle exchanges is something that we also do right and then they actually, um, because the Taiwanese government is backing this, they actually offer free healthcare to people who do have HIV from intravenous drug use. Even though Taiwan has a nationalized healthcare services, there are services that the nationalized healthcare will not cover because it's not under like, it's not under something that the, the, the government will pay for, right? But if you are a substance user, the Taiwanese government understands that you need these services because it's like a pre-existing -con pre condition, right? And then they'll offer you free healthcare. It's not something that you have to pay out of pocket, which is so interesting because it's not, well, it's not something that, you know, <laughs> we can do over here within the Americas, but it's something to aspire towards. And so this is kind of the the difference between like punitive punishment and rehabilitative punishment, which is, you know, we're trying to educate you so that you don't ever do this again, rather than we're just going to lock you away for two, three, three years. Yeah. And then when you get back out, guess what's going to happen? You're going to end up doing it again. There's like some good things that, you know, Taiwan's government is doing, but there's some like bad things that they're doing. It's just kind of that mix of Eastern and Western philosophy towards substance use. I would be really fascinated, especially in especially in the demographics and what the government is doing and how like Scandinavian populations or the Scandinavian government is dealing with these issues. They have like a nationalized healthcare services and you know, we always hear about how their populations are so happy. <laughs> and how they're doing so much better than everybody else. So I'd be really interested to seeing what their government does to deal with substance use issues. Yeah, that would be really interesting to maybe like compare and contrast because even though Scandinavian communities do have different community conditions, I guess, than um, Asian communities and obviously Asian American communities, it would be interesting to see what could be transferred over or adapted for our communities yeah i think it is really interesting because we do share like a lot of cultural similarities especially with scandinavian communities where they're very focused on community oriented 
right? They're very community oriented. They have a trust in their government that like with the nationalized healthcare services, it's similar as well, right? So I would be really interested in like looking at the demographics and sitting down and reading the research, especially in how Scandinavian countries are trying to deal with it. I just like love reading <laughs> and trying to assess like what are best practices from other countries that we can apply, especially to our personal services and especially to our outreach. So given that, like what you just mentioned about you enjoy reading and um, gathering information to kind of inform suggestions for the approach that ADAP has or the communities that we work with, are there any of those suggestions that are on the top of your head right now that you would like to share? I think um, what is something, well, it's it's something that I think all substance use organizations need to do, which is utilizing and kind of attracting bilingual staff, because I like the immigrant population is something that a lot of you know substance use organizations really don't cater towards. They cater towards a lot of you know English first language speakers focus on you know those who are well educated and i i go through a lot of like other substance use organizations i go through their website and i think a lot of um, places suffer from which is the burden of knowledge which is we know a lot about the organization because we're the ones who work here and we're the ones who are creating the pamphlets and the websites and all that stuff but if you don't really work here and you're looking at the website it, it can be either be a overwhelming or b you know you've lost interest and you're gonna go look somewhere out for help re-examining how we offer services and re-examining how we kind of do the outreach of those services i think is very important we kind of live in like the quote-unquote digital digital era and so i think inquiry about services online is something that i think I think a lot of other substance use organizations kind of do need to look into, especially doing intake online. People are more willing to fill out a form online than in person. Right. It is, it would increase accessibility to certain services. Yeah, it would just, it's, it's just a version of increasing services and it's kind of helping you streamline the intake process. I think like the organization could work towards, um, especially in while they're kind of in this transition era where, you know, they we just finished the 50th and now we have to look at, you know, what the next 50 years are going to be. I'm not even in like outpatient or like um, on the treatment services. I just like really am passionate about um, like especially marketing towards these types of demographics, the AAPI community, because like this is like an issue that nobody really discusses. And I understand like through historical aspects, like, oh yeah, you know, my mom never tells me anything. But like, I, I, it's just, it's just exciting to see what, what could happen, right? The next steps. B, was there anything else that you wanted to share in the last kind of last call before we wrap up this episode? I was just curious about like what your feelings were, especially because you 
like i have a degree in social justice movements within the united states but you actually got like you actually studied aapi history i studied it a little bit my degree was in asian american studies was encompassing both history as well as um contemporary movements and kind of just similar to what you shared about like uh, shaping the future of asian american communities i honestly did not get into substance abuse or even like mental health which is another side of what adop has been focusing on a lot recently um i didn't really get into that my focus was more so a little bit of like social movements specifically when it came to politics and um cultural kind of relevancy so i will say i'm not the most equipped when it comes to adop's mission like when i when I joined the organization about a year and a half ago, I this was all very new to me. I came into the organization knowing that obviously substance use and abuse is something that, like you mentioned, is not an issue that's that I grew up around or like grew up hearing people talk about other than, you know, like my peers being like, oh, yeah, we're going to go we're going to go smoke behind this building. But it's, you know, very hush hush kind of thing. I just I came in knowing that it was important because I had also been like like a a close friend of mine at the time had um, kind of like a scary encounter um, with substances and it was something that like kind of shook my entire or like our whole group of friends at the time and so I came in having that kind of like fresh experience um, but I feel like I've learned a lot more since being in the organization and um, you did mention our outpatient and prevention units um, who are really doing all the rigorous groundwork when it comes to ADAP's mission of meeting communities like marginalized communities in South Los Angeles and getting them treatment and being holistic about how we address those issues. I do agree with your uh, whole kind of idea of that there's a lot that we can aspire to, um, especially when it comes to accessibility and meeting potential clients where they're at in terms of what they need and how we can best support them in uh, a recovery journey or whether it's like just helping support them in their, you know, kind of like discovery of what these issues are on a community level. It is it is hard because or at least for me, like thinking about it from the lens of like, oh, I'm only one person. I don't even work in the prevention unit anymore. So I don't have, you know, I'm not within close proximity of the people who are doing the groundwork. And even when I was in the prevention unit, my role was that I was an administrative assistant. So it was kind of like there was this distance and almost dissonance between me and the work that was actually being done. Um, that definitely has carried over now to my position within the administrative unit and even more so has been magnified yeah i think i think because of our our position it's really interesting because we focus a lot on strategy I, I love doing research to help me better my strategy and to kind of give me that weight behind like what i'm trying to propose or like items that i'm proposing um like even when i was in college i was on student leadership for multiple years and so there's kind of this a struggle um or a little bit of a limbo between how much strategy is obviously necessary to inform decisions and actual field work or what i've been calling the groundwork versus how much strategy is too much strategization so to the point where you're just 
coming up with all of this like mental back work but actually have no idea what's really going on i think it's always difficult but i'm like a big proponent on especially like doing the work on the ground like i love working with people one-on-one especially and i love working like i love just like sitting down and doing that like quote-unquote groundwork i think it's really especially in our position it's really interesting because it kind of helps us be better right especially about what we're trying to propose or those types of items exactly well that being said Thank you all for listening to this um, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month uh, edition of the ADAP podcast. Thank you again to Beatrice or to B for sharing um, so much valuable and well-informed or well-backed information with us today. Donate to ADAP and support our mission and our work. Um, Beatrice, how do people find out how to donate to us you can go onto the website and it should be the first slider that you guys see on the website and it has a wonderful donation button that you can click on to help donate so convenient i love that wonderful okay thank you again and thank you to everyone for listening uh be sure to tune in next time for another uh very enlightening conversation with whoever the guest is i don't know off the top of my head you'll just have to tune in to find out great job see you guys thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.